Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Loose's Week in Ambridge. We began the week with Tony, moaning. Oh, we are back to normal, aren't we? He'd stubbed a chill blade on a bit of Lego and that set him off. Helen has had a look at the figures and come to the astonishing conclusion that purely with a failing cheese business during a gigantic global recession, she can afford to make a gigantic mortgage commitment. Oh, well. Just one more suggestion for the great pantheon of baffling Ambridge finances. Banjo has kissing spines. That sounds like autocorrect, doesn't it? But it isn't. It's a real, true storyline. Joy bought some carrots from the farm shop and as is her wont, three minutes later, Tony was weeping on the counter. The prospect of Helen and the boys finally moving out, but then only moving 100 yards away down the lane, nearly triggered a nervous breakdown. He decided the least he could do was actually pay them to leave, which, as Helen said, would make an enormous difference in that it would be actual real money rather than some pieces of paper Jack had coloured in that she was hoping to hand over with a winning smile. Philip is running cables up his house to put up a massive great flashing Santa. Just goes to show what I have always said. People that are obsessively fanatical about Christmas are modern slavery practising fascists. Well, I haven't always said that, but I am now. Over at Brooker's, David was sulking because Mummy wanted him to play with his sister's friend and he didn't want to. Jill and Elizabeth could watch over them fondly while Vince bashes David over the head with his plastic tractor before pinching his pocket money and kicking him in the nuts, leaving David weeping gently into his box of stickle bricks. Philip broke the news to Gaff that he was going to buy a house in Wales. Mr Thickey immediately envisaged stepping into his dad's shoes and running a construction empire assuming he doesn't burn all the properties down with toast, but Philip broke the unpleasant and, I think, totally erroneous news that the business was boracic. It's not all bad news for Gavin, though, as apparently his dad is leaving him the van, a bag of tools and three traumatised young men. The irony meter shot off the scale when Gavin insisted that the poor buggers they've been using as slaves for the last couple of years should be sold to someone who treated them with respect. No one sounds like they're much looking forward to Christmas, to be honest. Jimus is having a big gay Christmas over Zoom, which is only slightly less depressing than a normal Christmas over Zoom, and he's panicking about it. I don't know why. Just because his daughter and her girlfriend are lesbiotic, they won't be any less boring at Christmas than any other relations. I think he thinks they're going to be wearing leather waistcoats and lighting matches on each other's stubble or something. Susan was miserable, as the children would be with her this year, but as her children are Chris and Emma and permanently at each other's throats... I'd see that as something to celebrate. Rory will be fully occupied being bisexual, so he'll have his hands full. And Joyce sounded wistful at the prospect of the entirely fictional Rochelle not coming to stay with her. Honestly, they're happy, some people. 
Eddie's attempts to double-cross the detectorists ended in disaster. Who would have expected it? David and Eddie got a bit carried away, both wearing leather jackets and driving down alleyways, smashing through piles of cardboard boxes, waiting for Pete and Darren to arrive. The plan was to corner them in a field. Which is quite tricky to do without them seeing you. The trouble is David and Eddie spend so much time with cattle... They've forgotten that you can't herd people up by whacking them on the arse and shouting, Go on! And then ushering them out through a gate into the waiting arms of the police. When should we ring the police? Asked David excitedly. Oh, yes, yes, ring the police. Four days later, Harrisman will turn up, peddling like blazes. So the upshot was that Eddie got his tyres slashed, proving that the only thing more incompetent than the actual Borsetshire police force is David and Eddie playing police. Things were not very good over Ambridge View either. Susan had let Bert Fry deliver a three-hour monologue on a hundred ways to improve your kneeling, and this, coming quickly on her two-hour extravaganza on mushrooms, meant that even Radio Borchester thought they couldn't let this continue. I mean, to be honest, they'd pulled the plug on her halfway through lockdown, but no one had dared say anything, so she'd been talking to herself since August, but it still hurt. Neil helpfully informed her you can, let a lot, you can let a lot of stress out with a chainsaw. A more dangerous suggestion to Susan, I cannot imagine. Neil, you need your head testing. On a lighter note, it was the annual switching on of the Ambridge lights. Ambridge didn't seem to have got the hang of the social distancing, really. So the village residents all stood really close together on one side of the green, but distanced from the lights, which actually worked because everyone was downwind of the smell of Brad's vomit. Also, had they worked, they would have been at a greater distance to appreciate Tracy's display of a snowman doing something unspeakable to Rudolph. Yes, Brad had indulged in slightly too much of the Christmas spirit and had vommed lavishly everywhere. It was Jazza's home brew that was responsible. But to be honest, even a 14-year-old is old enough to know not to drink something out of a hydroponic fish tank. Tracy marched around and confronted Jazza, and Jim had to put on his fluty old man voice to calm them both down. Jazza then marched around and confronted Tracy. There was more marching than a ticker tape parade, but the problem was they were both right. By all accounts, Tracy's Brad is two foot nothing, and his ID was that of a burly 18-year-old called Shanice, so that should surely have alerted Jazza. But on the other hand, as Jazza pointed out, Tracy has taken every opportunity to get off her face from the age of 11 onwards. Honestly, it is almost as if the archers have signed the pledge. Has anyone got a good relationship with alcohol in Ambridge? Is the plan to make the entire village teetotal so they could virtue signal us to death by the end of December? For God's sake, it's the only thing we've got left. Some of us are all right with it, you know? The end. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. 